Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis again. This morning it is our aim to cover chapters 48 and 49. So please have your Bibles open or your electronic version out, not checking your fantasy football scores, but rather just reading the text as I go through it with you. Um, It's important to have it open because I'll allude to some specific verses. This green insert also I want to draw your attention to as you're turning to Genesis. This has the classes for the next quarter of Sunday School at Redeemer. All ages are mentioned on here and the locations where they will be meeting. So please take note of this. If you are new to the church, I would like to personally invite you to the class I teach through the weeks in December during the Sunday School Hour called the Meet the Pastor class. This is where you can learn more about the church and ask any questions you might have. And we meet in room 42 at 10 o'clock all the Sundays in December. So please take note of this. Put this somewhere where you can see it and participate in Sunday school. Now we come to the book of Genesis once again. We're in the finale of the book, as it were. These last two chapters, or these last these two chapters before us, I should say, it's the summary uh, ending of Jacob's life, where he gathers his first his son Joseph, his two grandsons that he adopts from Joseph's family to join the tribes of Israel. And then also he has a word of pronouncement or blessing for all of his sons gathered right before he dies. That's what we have in these two chapters. So we're going to cover all of that this morning with God's grace. You know, what can we say about Jacob? We're coming to the culmination of his life now, 147 years old. He can barely see, barely get out of bed. And we have this account for us. He has lived a life of ups and downs, really in many respects, like most believers, if you think about it. He truly believes in God. But he struggles in the flesh. He struggles the whole of his life. But at the end, he's very strong in his belief that God is faithful. And that is what underlies the blessings, the pronouncements that he makes in these chapters before us. Here now as I read God's holy word, I will make a few uh, explanatory comments as I go, just because we won't be able to cover all of that when we get to the actual points to be made from these chapters. This is God's holy word, Genesis 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by their name, by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Here Jacob is formalizing an adoption of Joseph's sons who will be grafted in to the tribes of Israel. Ephraim and Manasseh will have a tribe. Verse 7, As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go in Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, 
so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Remember, the right hand is the hand of prominence, and so Joseph wants the oldest, Manasseh, to receive the right hand of blessing from his father. Verse 14, And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Inexplicably but intentionally, Jacob does this blessing, blessing the younger over the older. Verse 15, And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be upon the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him 
shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's a messianic reference there. The older version, by the way, you might have, the scepter shall not depart until Shiloh appears. That's the older version. Uh, The better translation is until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience. It means the same thing. Verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. This is a forecast of the, the golden messianic era. Zebulun shall dwell in the shore, at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a, is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I await, or I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All of these typify the various tribes of Israel, what they'll become, or at least in some way it describes them. Verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father's in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. Father, the reading of your word moves us to a sense of reverent esteem. We know what we read is a message from heaven, safeguarded by you. The majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, just to name a few things. These give evidence that what we have before us is your very word. Yet, we are in need of your Holy Spirit now, so that we might understand and apply what we read. 
Please guide us as we give attention to these chapters in Genesis. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Once again, we remember the first time anybody read Genesis as a whole would have been the Israelites who were ready to go into Canaan. They had just been rescued from Pharaoh in Egypt 400 years after these events we're reading about. So Moses is cataloging to close that book um, clarity about their identity as the Israelites and to explain the tribes and where the tribes came from and the mantles that those tribes would hold. It's all part of the organization of Israel at this time as they're ready to go take the promised land. Of course, the message transcends just that time, the original time, and it tells us something of what unfolds, and we can see how this matches with the history. What we have is the curtain falling now in Genesis, finally. We're down to the last few chapters, and the curtain is starting to close, and we see Jacob speak words that are deeply rooted in faith in God. God has worked in his life over the years to make him believe more and more. Yes, for all the foibles and all the flaws, and there are many in Jacob's life, he's become a man of deep conviction, knowing that everything God had ever told him was right and true, so he can trust in what was coming. So as the curtain begins to fall on this account of Israel's earliest days, the development of Israel, the blessings or the pronouncements that Jacob speaks, they come from a place of faith, and this is what gives it its efficacy or its effect or its accuracy in the life of his sons. Now, there are several things that we can note, and that's what I'd like to do in our time together. And I put in bullet point form on your outline the different points that emerge from what I just read. And hopefully you can draw from that as you've just listened to this passage being read. The first thing I want us to notice is that what Jacob speaks with such confidence after the opening verses in chapter 48 It comes from a place of belief in God's covenant promises being true and real. He knows he's ending his life, the days of his life are ending. And so Joseph comes to him and he begins recounting, before he speaks any words of pronouncement or blessing or prophecy, he recounts the basis for his confidence in what he's about to say. Notice it says in the second verse in chapter 48, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. You can picture this dramatically. Jacob then says to Joseph, this is the recount, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. He goes back to where he first met God. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. So he repeated to Jacob what he said to Isaac and what he said to Abraham. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. He fully believes that God will bring the people of Israel, who are now just 70 strong in Egypt, he will bring them to a great company of people back to the land of Canaan. He's speaking of word of uh, profession of faith, you might say. And he wants his son to know that's the basis for everything else he's going to say. It's on the basis of God's word that Jacob has confidence and then can speak this word or these words of blessing first to Joseph's, grand, Joseph's sons, and then to his own sons. Yes, it's true. Jacob has a natural love for his sons, his family. They've been through a lot together, and the Lord has restored much. But it's a supernatural confidence that he has that makes him speak the way he speaks. It's a good lesson for us that we can have confidence 
with what we say if it's rooted in what God has revealed. When God promises something in his word, we can speak with confidence about it. And that's what you have unfolding in Jacob's last moments. This is why the author of Hebrews, when capturing Jacob's life for all the things he could have said, he says this, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. It was faith in God and his covenant promises, his gospel promises, that gives Jacob confidence to speak what he's about to say to his various sons. Now, before we get there and look at the blessings themselves, there's something else that I noted as I was reading that I don't want to pass over because I just thought in the life of our church, there's been so, much, so many people who have, who have gone to be with the Lord in our midst or family members of ours. People are bereaved. And I noticed something very human. Look at verse 7. And you see something about the sorrow of bereavement that hopefully gives comfort to believers. Believers will always have a sense of sorrow about those who have gone. Even though we know they're with the Lord, there will be a reunion. We miss them now. And we see this captured in what Jacob says. He says, as for me, verse 7 in chapter 48, when I came to Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, or Ephratah, you'll notice, Bethlehem. And I buried her there on the way. It's only a sentence, but when when you look at the economy of words and how he chooses to explain other things, to pause to mention his sorrow about Rachel. She died over 40 years before that, and it was still very raw for Jacob when he spoke of it. It's a display of grief or bereavement. Time doesn't take away the sorrow. You'll still have sorrow. That's a normal thing this side of the fall and before glory. Now, it's true that there is a time appointed, a limited time to grieve uh, in the way that we actively think about what we're doing, that we're grieving. It has to be a limited time or we'll become paralyzed by this because there will always be losses in this life. That's what happens when fallen people enter the world. In some sense, they begin dying. We have to know that's true. But we take an acute period of time to focus on grief. And that's what we do when someone dies. But once that time passes and we continue on with life, it is normal for there still to be a dull pain that is there. You will never get over the loss of a loved one. You're not weak for not getting over it. Now, it's true, some of the sharpness of that pain will subside. And I hate to say it's because we lose memory. That's the reality of this side of glory. Yes, we have a sure hope of reunion. But in our perception, here in the now, there are many years to be lived without our loved ones, and we think about those. And this is difficult for us. It was difficult for Jacob. Forty years have passed. Many things had happened in his life. He has a full family. He has much to be concerned with. They just survived a famine. Yet when he describes the past, it is so, so raw for him. For me, telling his son, when I came from Padam, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. I want you to notice one other item before we look at some of the blessings. Is it not very mysterious how God chooses who he chooses? I mean, I think we should all feel that because I know there's nothing about me that would make him choose me. I don't know. It's a mystery why God saves any or why he does what he does. And we have a bit of a picture of that mystery here with the hand switching, which seems so odd when you first read it. In verse 17, Joseph sees the hand switching He brings the sons to him, and and 
Jacob purposely switches his left hand to Manasseh, the older, and his right hand to Ephraim because he's, by God's Spirit, identifying prophetically the order that they will take in the tribes of Israel. Ephraim will become very pronounced. In fact, they'll name the whole northern kingdom after Ephraim. So he does this, and Joseph doesn't get this. It says in verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Not because he, doesn't, he likes one son more than the other, but this is the tradition. This is the law of primogenitor. Whoever the oldest is, they get, they get, he's been groomed to be the one who will be the favored one in this respect. But Joseph says, not this way, my father. This is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But then, with no hesitation, with complete intentionality, Jacob says, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people. A Manasseh will be a great tribe. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater. This is the choice that God makes sometimes. It's hard to understand why he does what he does. But he's not beholden to traditions. He's not beholden to our expectations. That's the truth in general about God's elective grace, his choosing. Robert Candlish says, God's sovereignty is a sovereignty wherein it is his prerogative to exercise. And he can do so without giving an account to any. And it's his pleasure to exercise it the way he does. Candlish also says, so it had ever been in God's dealings with the patriarchs in times past, and so it still will be. The economy of God's grace ordinarily proceeds in the same way. It humbles human wisdom because we can't figure out how he chooses what he chooses, but it ultimately glorifies his divine sovereignty. Here Jacob chooses to make the younger in some way prominent over the older. Now, we have seen this before in the Bible, in Genesis. Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Rachel over Leah, Joseph over his brothers, Judah over Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and now Ephraim over Manasseh. You know, when we contemplate the mystery of God's divine grace, we shouldn't get hung up or paralyzed about it. I don't understand this, or it doesn't feel fair to me. That's not where we ought to be. In fact, it should humble us that He's chosen us. In fact, what I like to say to people when they're really puzzling over the sovereignty of God and how he chooses what he chooses, here's all we've got to know. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you can be today. Now, let's look at the elements that are in these blessings. We'll take it in general form, and I want you to see. You'll notice I put some points under that point to just bring out some of the features of these pronouncements. They're not classic blessings or benedictions. Some are, but they include various elements. And they include retrospect, looking back at what had happened. They also look at present observation and some of the ways he says things. And then prospective statements or prophecies or forecasts of what's coming. Candlish again says it proceeds upon a review of the past as well as upon a foreknowledge of the future. They look backward and they look forward. Look at some of the elements. First of all, they appeal, a fa- they appeal to God's favor, for God to continue to show favor to his progeny. If you look at the Joseph blessing, it's the longest one we should expect being he is such a key figure in this portion of, of Genesis. He says in Joseph, to Joseph in verse 26 of chapter 49, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph. So it's just a classic asking for God to show his continued favor to Joseph. That's part of that blessing. Now you'll notice something else, a little uncomfortable. Imagine, this is a, they're all together, right? 
and he's pronouncing this to them from his deathbed. I've been at some deathbeds before and heard parents speak certain things to their kids. It's, the whole of it is just, uh, it's daunting and it's heavy and you don't know what might be said. You sometimes might worry about what may be said, especially I don't know the situation. I find myself there and you have that going on here and he's making these pronouncements. They have personal messages in them. I think you probably noticed. There are confessions of their sin laden in what he says. And there's even some discipline woven in, but it's still bunched up in a blessing, and we can see why it would still be part of a blessing. To show that point, look at Reuben at verse 3, and then Simeon and Levi right after. But first, Reuben. Again, try to gather if you're sitting in that room, and he's speaking these words, and you're Reuben. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But you're unstable. So you can't have this ongoing preeminence as the head of Israel. You went up to your father's bed. Remember what he did. is a way to usurp Jacob's authority. He took the pagan route of basically trying to take one of his concubines as one of Jacob's concubines as his wife. It was a statement of dominance over Jacob. We don't hear much about Jacob's opinion on it other than that becomes something that puts Reuben out of sorts with him. But then imagine now he's telling this. Then it says, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. You can almost imagine him now saying to everybody else who's thinking, that's hardcore what you're saying. And he says, he went up to my couch. I mean, this is, talk about uncomfortable. Then he says to Simeon and Levi, you are weapons of violence with your swords. Verse 6, let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. In other words, they are hotheads. They, they do not have the patience necessary to lead the people of God, if you will, or to be the, the ones who are the head of this great tribe. Cursed be their anger. He doesn't curse them, but they're angry. And so what he does, he's going to divide them into Jacob. He's going to diffuse their influence. He's going to make sure that Reuben's not preeminent, and he's going to make sure Simeon and Levi, he's not going to do away with them. They're going to have tribes. The Levites will be the heads of the priests. But they're not going to have the influence with their demeanor that they might have if he doesn't speak this way or doesn't pronounce this or make this so. Now, that's a hard part of what he says, but there are forecasts into the future that are individual forecasts. Look at verse 13. Zebulun, you'll dwell at the shore of the sea and become a haven for ships. That's quite a prediction for a tribe that's in Egypt, in Goshen at that point. Dan, you'll, judge, you'll, you'll be a judge of the peoples of Israel. Gad, there are going to be raiders who raid you, but you're going to raid them back. Asher, you're going to have the best food in the ancient Near East. I mean, these are very personal predictions that are not going to find their fulfillment while they're in Goshen, while they're in Egypt for 400 more years. But most importantly, with regard to forecasts of the future, is the forecast to Judah. There we have clear prophecy of the Messiah to come. Look at verse 8 of chapter 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. What a turn for Judah. We witnessed it as we walked through the passages together. Judah was no better than Simeon and Levi or Reuben. In fact, what he did with Tamar, you might think would disqualify him. But it was never on the basis of their good works. It was based on the grace of God working in them that would give them a favored place. That's true for all of us. And in Judah's case, God worked conviction 
and his demeanor changed, and he repented of what he was like. In fact, we know the fruit of his repentance because when push came to shove, he was willing to substitute himself for Benjamin. Benjamin, who technically might be his rival, who's also a son of Rachel. Yet he says, I will give my life for Benjamin rather than my father be hurt anymore by losing another son. We see the rehabilitation, the restoration of Judah, and then here it comes to full understanding. It says in verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. And here's another aspect of messianic prophecy. The scepter or the kingship shall not depart from Judah. So the, the kingship will find its main line through Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So there will always be a kingship tied up with Judah's house. And it will not depart until, and this is a fulfillment, until tribute comes to him. The older versions say when Shiloh comes to him, when it's fulfilled. And to him, a personage shall be the obedience of the peoples. It's a picture of the Messiah to come. Now, we know this to be true as Jesus comes and fulfills these prophecies. And then the book of Revelation, for instance, says, I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, an individual here, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. So much said to Judah here, forecasted 1,800 years before Christ comes. And then we have a forecast of what the, the ultimate age of the Messiah would look like, final fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine. That's a, a show of riches. And his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Very mysterious to the first hearers, no doubt, and even over the centuries. But then we come to the fulfillment of Christ and even still look forward to Christ's final coming. In Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in the righteousness, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And by the name which he is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. On his robe will be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you see the elements included in Jacob's blessings are rooted in the faith he, he has of what God has revealed to him in his life and there even by the Holy Spirit giving him understanding and insight about what was to come. The final point I want to make that wraps up the life of Jacob in chapter 49 has to do with the precision that he applies to his being buried. I think we take it too lightly in this day and age. We don't like death for good reason, and so we try to get rid of it quickly and out of sight. But the ancients never saw it this way, and in the history of Christianity, Christians never saw it that way, because the body was still something that made profession of faith and what we thought would come. Uh, we handled it very carefully in this light. You see that throughout the Old Testament, throughout church history, and I think it's a helpful reminder for us as we formulate in our minds even our own funeral plans. We should think in terms of the way the Bible casts this picture. 
Back in chapter 47, you remember they had just gotten to Egypt. They were rescued from the famine. There was a great joy and celebration. They got the land of Goshen. Life couldn't have been better for them compared to most people on the earth. And Jacob's very appreciative of this. But he draws Joseph to him closely, and he says in chapter 47, do not bury me in Egypt. Now, I want to make a point here. Please see it. He doesn't say, don't bury my body in Egypt. He says, don't bury me in Egypt. His body is still him. Body and soul created together. That's for eternity. They're separated in an anomalous way during death, but it's still him. Don't bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers in the land of Canaan, the place God's promised, because there's so much wrapped up in what he's saying. I believe that God will fulfill by giving us this land. And though I be dead in body, eventually in the new heavens and the new earth, I'll be where he promised, and I'll rise from that place. He believes in the resurrection. Now we get to chapter 48. Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. He wants Joseph to look forward. Now Joseph himself, this is talking about Israel, going, and then it's talking ultimately in what will be true in the everlasting kingdom. But now we come to verse, the verses that end chapter 49. He gives specific intentional instructions again. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. I am to be gathered to my people when he dies. That has to speak of his soul going to be with him. But bury me, my body, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is a field back in Canaan. And he maps out exactly where he wants it to be, where Abraham is and the others have been buried. Now, what are we to make of such ardent and clear plans? We should not just blow by this. Why does he put such emphasis on burial? By saying what he says, he is wanting there to be a testimony to the truthfulness of what God says will come to pass. The resurrection will occur. And follow this, and I want to be resurrected in the land of promise. He says, bury me, not bury what used to be me, and certainly don't burn me up. Now, I know this is a sensitive topic, and when people make the choice, say to cremate, I don't step in the way as a pastor. So before I'm sitting with you in a funeral home and you were wondering what I might think about it, if it matters, I think Christian history emphasizes that Christians should practice burial. God is not thwarted by cremation, not thwarted by the loss of the body and the resurrection. Not whatsoever. It's not an essential matter. But if we want to be thoroughly biblical in our approach and outlook and what we believe about the body and the soul, I think it moves us in this direction. The Heidelberg Catechism says, and think about it this way, what is your only comfort in life and death? We say it at every funeral. Listen to the answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Later in the Heidelberg, it says, why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. They are gathered to be with their fathers. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. So when Jacob says, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave, the specifics are important here in his mind. There's 
a profession of faith in what he is doing, a profession of what God has said. So it's the idea of burying the corrupted body so that it may be raised again to a new creation. This is exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians, who had some of the same ideas, because in Corinth, among pagans, it was the most common practice is to burn the body. And there was a a correction that was occurring in just the way we think about body-soul. And Paul says to the Corinthians, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So when we go through a committal service at the graveyard, wherever the cemetery site may be, what we're doing is we're gathering for a final word, and we always read this passage and remind every believer there that what we're doing right now is a profession of faith. We're, we're putting the body into the ground. Who's that person? The person's soul is with the Lord, but that person's body is in the ground awaiting for that day where they're reunited. Lots to be unpacked there, but here we are in the passage. So I thought it was a good time to address that topic. In conclusion, I want us to wrap up the life in the person of Jacob. Since we won't see him again, we only have one chapter left. And he deserves a bit of a summary because of the figure he has been in our reading for probably the last six to eight months with Jacob in the background at least, if not the forefront. I tried all these different eloquent ways to describe him, and I kept coming back to Robert Candlish, who was masterful at how he describes Jacob. So I'll close with what he says. Jacob's character may not be great, understatement. Perhaps his men count greatness, not exalted, not noble, not fit for high achievements, but weak, rather, if you will, and inclined to the arts of weakness. Not always amiable, any more than admirable, apt to suffer by contrast with some of the finer natural qualities with such a man as his brother Esau occasionally exhibited. Yet surely on the whole, it is a character worth study and not without attractions. At any rate, it is all before us, the worst and the best. We see what materials grace and faith had to work with, and we see what, in the actual result, grace and faith made of those materials. We see grace making a weak man strong, for surely to the last he was strong in faith. It made the worm Jacob into the prince Israel. Let us follow his faith, considering the end of his conversation, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. His varied and checkered troubled experience, is it not full of instruction and comfort to the spiritually exercised soul? It is almost next to David's, the most so of any left on the record of the Old Testament. There is scarcely a mood of mind into which sin or sorrow can cast the believer that may not find a type of parallel in the life and example of Jacob. Weakness in himself as well as weakness caused by his suffering, his suffering wrong by the hand of others and these other family friends, familiar friends, as well as foes. Foes of his own household, Jacob certainly exhibits. Much of history is written for our warning. In much of it, he is a beacon rather than a pattern. But much also is written for our encouragement and our guidance in running the race set before us. Faint yet pursuing Amid many cares and fears, many faults and infirmities, we may learn not a little from Jacob while we seek to walk with strangers and pilgrims on the earth, waiting for the salvation of the Lord. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each 
of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, as we now near the end of this magnificent book of Genesis, we are struck by the life of Jacob as we think back on it. Your favor on Jacob gives us comfort and confidence about how you shower your grace upon sinners like us. Now, O Lord, please take what we have read and considered and bind it to our hearts and use it to mold the way we walk in this world. Pray this for the honor of Christ our Savior, in whose name uh, we want all glory and honor to be given. Amen. Let's turn now in our hymnals as a response to 164. The elders and the ushers will come to prepare the table as we 